yes, you know, work is broken. Uh, and, you know, there is, you know, as, as we'll discuss, a way to fix it. You know, one of these fundamental causes is that leaders and managers who make decisions about how work gets done don't think about what we as humans want from work, meaning, autonomy, feedback. You know, can we think of employees themselves as customers of the work? And, you know, we, we, we know that engagement is low. We know that, uh, you know, more productivity, more customer satisfaction, that these things are possible. In her book, Conversational Intelligence, Judith Glasser wrote, to get to the next level of greatness depends on the quality of our culture, which depends on the quality of our relationships, which depends on the quality of our conversations. Everything happens through conversations. Welcome to Conversations, powered by Quantivos. Welcome to this edition of Conversations. I'm Brian Gorman, a Quantivos coach and your host today. And today we have two guests. Our first is David Henkin. David is an accomplished executive and entrepreneur with a proven track record of success in prominent global companies as well as startups. Welcome, David. Delighted to be here. Thanks for having us. And our second guest is Thomas Bertels. Thomas is president and founder of Purpose Works, a management consulting firm on a mission to make work more productive, valuable, meaningful, and impactful. So welcome, Thomas. Thanks for having us. Thomas and David are authors of a book which is to be released late in September called Fixing Work. And I had really the privilege of reading this book before it hit the bookshelf. And that's why David and Thomas are here, because there are some really, really important messages for every listener, whether you are a frontline worker or a frontline leader or sitting in the C-suite or anything in between. Um, they really, really hit on a number of different things, and they do it in a work of fiction. So I want to start actually with a brief quote from your introduction because it sets the stage for the book. It sets the stage for our conversation today. High turnover, low levels of employee engagement, low productivity, unclear accountabilities, frustrated customers, these are all symptoms that tell us that in many organizations, work is fundamentally broken. And so as we get into the story, uh, we're, we're introduced to a, a number of characters, if you will, and, and a department inside of an insurance company that has all of those things. And the, the company's leadership is recognizing them and looking to solve them. They're talking more flex time, remote work, at least for some roles, and casual dress. So let's start there. Talk with us about how these critical problems that so many 
customers and, and organizations are facing, how these problems are not solved. Well, let me maybe just briefly build on what you said. I think, you know, you, you, you essentially introduced the main idea of the book. Yes, you know, work is broken. Uh, and, you know, there is, you know, as, as we'll discuss, a way to fix it. You know, one of these fundamental causes is that leaders and managers who make decisions about how work gets done don't think about what we as humans want from work, meaning autonomy, feedback. You know, can we think of employees themselves as customers of the work? And, you know, we, we, we know that engagement is low. We know that, uh, you know, more productivity, more customer satisfaction, that these things are possible. The book does provide a roadmap to do that. And this is, we'll talk more about it. This is not a new idea, right? This goes back, you know, decades of research, uh, you know, from Henry Kurzberg and Douglas McGregor, you know, Richard Hackman, others. You know, these ideas are particularly relevant in today's world, especially with AI, gig work, you know, where much more people are becoming knowledge workers. Yeah, and I think, uh, I mean, back, back to the point that you're making, right? Uh, I think a lot of like the solutions that, that leaders have these days, right? Give them an extra day, allow them to wear a Hawaiian shirt on Fridays or, or whatever it might be, right? That really, I think, don't get to the underlying root cause, as, as David said, that we, we often just make decisions about right, who gets to do what, how many, right? How, how, how broad their job is, how much autonomy they have without really thinking about like the human on the other end, right? So we end up with like, right, put technology in, we redesign the processes, and then we're kind of like, like fitting the people into the roles dictated by those processes and technologies. And I think we're just missing a huge opportunity to make the work itself more motivating. And so a lot of these, these solutions that people throw at it, they really don't get at the root cause of the problem. I want to pick up on something that David said, because you introduce a almost invisible character, but a critical character in in the terms of a, I, I guess he's a management consultant. Um, and he said, in this day and age, maybe you need to think about the jobs you offer as a product itself. How competitive is the product? How well designed is it to meet the needs of the consumer, the employee in this case? And I have to tell you, for me, that's like a whole new lens and highly, highly valuable lens to bring to even creating a job description. Yeah, no, no doubt. Um, I, I think the, um, if you think about product design in an organization, right? I, I just this morning, I went to Tesla, right? I need a, I need a new car. I, I test drive it. We spent a lot of effort and energy into not just designing the physical product and figuring out the specs, but also creating the buying experience, right? And so there's a lot of resources that go into this. And there is nothing equivalent to that when it comes to how we design work, right? So somebody copies and pastes the job description that they had from a different company seven years ago, right? And so we're perpetuating the same patterns again and again we don't realize that, I mean, it didn't even fit back then, right, for, for what people want from work, but it definitely doesn't fit today because people, right, COVID had three years to sit at home and think about what they want from work and what they get from work, and they realize there's a big gap, right? And I think people are just not, not willing anymore to accept that, and that's why we're seeing the high turnover, the low rates of engagement. And in so many instances, just when people look at work, the work appears mechanistic. 
we understand the work process. And so much of what's missing from that is, well, the humans in the work, work is humanistic. Where do we, where, where do we build into the work process? This idea of, you know, being a customer of the work. Are we thinking about the human experience of performing the work process, not just the mechanistic results of executing the work process? Key and message for process designers, eh? Yeah. Start thinking about the fact that people aren't those theory X cogs in the machine. I mean, I'm a recovering process designer, right? I mean, I've, I've been doing the Lean and Six Sigma for 20, 25 years, right? So when I first got introduced to these ideas 20 years ago, I was like, oh my God, this is the other side of the coin, right? Because if you kind of like design the process, you move the boxes in the swim lanes, but this really brings a perspective, like look at it from the, the, the swim lane, right? From the perspective of the employee, how does it look like, right? And I think it boils down to kind of like, very simplistically, do people feel like they can win in this job, right? Do they get a sense of winning, of completion, of success? Or is it, as David said, it's just like transactions, right? And they're just a number and they're easily replaceable, right? And they don't really have a, a say in what the work is and how the work gets done. And I think in today's age, right, when the knowledge area, so many jobs are no longer about the hands that, that work the keywords, but about right, the gray matter that we apply uh, between our ears. And, and so, again, it's like our most valuable capital walks out the door every day and we hope that they come back. Right? Why don't we create like an environment that they want to come back, right? That they really enjoy the work that they do. Yeah. It's a, Thomas makes such a great point. And, it, and it's not that process design is, is wrong. It's not wrong. It's just not enough. It's that in addition, we need to understand these, these human dimensions. And, you know, we've had lots of conversations, you know, job by job by job. You know, I mean, an HVAC repair person is very different than a brain surgeon, which is very different than a, a software programmer. Each of these can be looked at from a job design, a work design perspective that looks at both the work process and things like meaning, purpose, feedback, and, and, and how to understand how that gets organized. What, one example we often think about is, you know, in a startup, everybody's in one room. You, you tend to have, you know, a, a big Kanban board and everybody's aware of the work and the flows. You start getting a little bit larger and we say, gee, we're going to take this team and we're going to move them, you know, we're going to move them upstairs or we're going to move them downstairs. And now we're getting a little bigger. We're going to take this third team and we're going to, we're going to move it offshore. And some of those may be right-minded, but are we attending to what we're doing to the work experience, both mechanistically and humanistically when we begin to do that? And I think, David, one of the things that that speaks to is the person who's right for the job in the startup might not be right for the job as the organization reaches a certain point in its evolution. Yeah, Absolutely. And, and it's like the right, wrong, peck, square hole type scenario, right? There are people that want a job where they grow, where they develop, right? And if we put them into like a poorly designed job that doesn't deliver that, they're going to atrophy, right? They're just going to, they're going to be miserable. The same is true on the other end too, right? If you're like somebody who says like, I'm, I'm a jazz musician, right? I, right? My mental energy goes into performance tonight. I need a job that I can do with my eyes closed, Right? Don't put that person into like a challenging, high growth, high, highly motivating job. That's not what they want. Right? But I think way too often we assume that people, right, it's like have no desire to really contribute. Right? We, we got to force them to be at work. We better check on them. We better control them. And, and I think that that mindset, I think, it's like prevents us from seeing the opportunities that are available. If we say, 
they want to contribute to something that's bigger than themselves. Let's give them a bigger job. As I'm listening to you, Thomas, um, what comes to mind is one of my responsibilities is both developing and overseeing the development of a group coaching curricula. And we have a particular client who has started to move hourly employees into salaried positions based not on education, but based on competence, based on skill. And the upcoming group coaching focus for them is uh, helping them develop their comfort and capability of having career conversations with their supervisors. And I have long been a proponent of uh, people finding passion in their work. And as I thought about the curriculum for this particular uh, group of people, for some that passion isn't um, to make the world a better place for humanity or something. It's, I am passionate about putting food on the table and keeping a roof over my family. And we can't be judgmental about that. Yeah. It, it, it reminds us, and you know, Thomas has told the story many times about the, the, the story of the, the, the bricklayers from the cathedral. And, you know, the, the, they're, they're, it takes all kinds, right? And, you know, the, the, the first one is, is, is laying bricks and is working hard. And, you know, the second one, to your point, is, is putting food on the table. You know, the, the context for the work is a little bit different. And then the third individual is, is building a cathedral, sees the, 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 sees the meaning and the, the end state, the vision of the entire thing. And being able to attend to that in, in, in the work design is essentially important. I want to go back to that work design. And again, one of the things I really appreciated about the book isn't it's just highlighting what's important in the design. You actually take us through the experience of that design process, and it, it ain't easy. But the, the first thing I want to, to go to is another quote from the book for job to qual for a job to qualify as good meaning intrinsically motivating it needs to meet three criteria autonomy knowledge of results meaning feedback and meaningful work how did you come to these are sort of the three cornerstones if you will of creating meaningful work. Yeah, that goes back to, that really honestly goes back to the 1960s, right? To uh, Henry Kurtzberg's motivation and hygiene theory. And and there are two uh, gentlemen, uh, Richard Hackman and and, uh, and, and Oldham, um, that basically created a diagnostic, that did research around like, well, what are like the elements of, right? Highly, uh, highly effective workplaces. And they identified these factors and they validated that using a survey tool, which is actually, I were using similar questions in the survey tool that we're using uh, called the Mojo Diagnostic. But the results have been replicated again and again. Right? I mean, people call it a little bit different. Daniel Pink called it right? purpose, mastery, autonomy, right? But, but it's a little bit the same stuff, right? I mean, meaningful work, that's really, right? We want to do something that has purpose for somebody else, right? Uh, we want to do something from start to finish, so you have the sense of completion. You're doing the entire job. Then you want to be able to use a number of different, right, challenging skills, right? And and so that's the meaningful work aspect, right? Autonomy stands for itself, right? Do you have decision 
authority, right? Do you have space to, to make decisions about how the work gets done, where the work gets done, uh, and so forth. And then, yeah, you got to know how you're doing, right? So you got to know just by doing the work, how you're performing versus the supervisor tells you once a year, you know, like in 2022, you did a good job, right? That's not very helpful, right? You, you want to be like a golfer. You hit the ball, right? You see where the ball goes. You say, the well, next time I got to right, stand a little bit different. No, with an opportunity to add, I'd be delighted. I mean, I, I, there's an example that we pointed at sometimes, which is, you know, working on a, on a, working on a factory floor, right? And there's an example of a, a personal friend who worked in a sandwich factory. And, you know, some, someone does the bread, someone does the lettuce, someone does the tomato, someone does the bologna. Uh, she was the baloney person. So all day long is, you know, baloney, baloney, baloney. And, you know, this, this has a couple of negative implications, right? I mean, not only do you not get feedback, um, you know, and, you know, the, the, the alternative being, hey, you get to do the whole sandwich and you get to see somebody eat it. But if someone comes to you and says, hey, by the way, the tomatoes are good, you say, well, gee, that's not my problem. Um, well, the bread was soggy. Well, gee, I, that's not me, right? No, I'm, I'm, I, I, got, I can't help you there. Um, and so you got a little of this, you know, the two finger salute happening where it's like, no, no, that's somebody else. It's not me. Um, and so the, the, the layers of breakdown associated with not attending to the opportunity to see the end result all along the way. Because most people want to self-correct. You know, most people, you know, if you get feedback from the work itself, most people will naturally say, gee, no, it's not so good. I want to fix that. Um, and and, and that, that's part of the basic fundamentals of, of, of the design and the components that you mentioned. And for me, it, it brings to mind Peter Drucker from the 1990s, who, and, and probably even before that, the reading that I was doing was back then, but um, where he said that in the world of work today, the system needs to serve the worker, not the worker serve the system. And part of that message for me is the importance of leaders. And for me, today, everybody in the workplace needs to be a leader. If you're a frontline supervisor, you're leading, or you should be. Um, the importance of leaders knowing the people, not just the roles and, and the job description, if you will, that Thomas was hired for. And you really make that point uh, fairly early in this story where this department that is supposed to be processing new client, new customer information um, is dramatically behind, which is not a good place to be for any business and certainly not for an insurance company that's supposed to be processing claims. And, and this character named Tatum creates a bot that can really accelerate some of the, the manual processing and, or not as accelerate the manual processing, but replace the manual processing and help them to start clearing up the backlog. And um, his supervisor says, who knew he was such a computer genius? We all should know that about our workers in this day and age because they bring a whole lot more than the skills we hire them for. It, it's such a powerful point on, on so many levels. And you, your point about everyone being a leader is 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 just such so important from a change management perspective because much of the initiation of being able to employ some of these uh, some of these tools and techniques 
is being willing to challenge the status quo, which in, in and of itself, it doesn't take, you know, a, a VP or a director or a manager to do that. You know, Tatum challenged the status quo. Uh, and, you know, the environment was such that he felt felt the willingness and the ability to do, to do that. And so creating a space where that is welcomed, where the status quo isn't defended, if you will, um, and, you know, the, 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 the relationship between individuals and the jobs that they're in makes that possible. Yeah, I think it's like sometimes you would call it job crafting, right? Where right, employees like make the job, right, fit their skills. But I think there's also a bigger topic there that we're trying to make, which is that, you know, maybe you don't have somebody, right, who has exactly the skill you need. But I think if you have Slack in the organization and you invite the employees to help you figure it out, that's also oftentimes an opportunity to develop new skills, right? Because, right, some people see this and like want to learn more about it. And, and if you create an opportunity for them to bring these tools or these ideas into their job, right? I mean, it's great for the organization. It's also great for them. And just to build on that real quick, if it's okay, this idea of the triple win, right? I mean, can it be better for the employee? Can it be better for the organization? Can it be better for the clients? It, it, it is actually possible. I know it seems, you know, antithetical and, you know, these are certainly tension points because there's many organizations that while they say people are our most valuable asset, you know, it's back to the Hawaiian shirt and the, you know, the, you know, the summer, you know, a half day of Fridays on the weekends, um, you know, really organizing that and, and paying that forward in terms of the design of the work itself, equipping managers with the capabilities to do this really addresses this triple constraint in a way that it, it, it is not only possible, it is happening, and the research is there. Uh, and, and hopefully this provides a, a framework, a playbook, a roadmap uh, to help folks get there. Tatum wasn't universally welcomed when he <laughs> brought this bot on board. And and I think that's there's an important, important point there also for those of us who bring out the best in our Tatums because systems are meant to be self-sustaining. They're not designed to change. And so having the courage as a leader to step up, well, to do a few things that, that we've touched on in the last, minute, uh, last few minutes. One is to step up and say, yeah, maybe we violated the security protocols at the IT department and we're solving the problem, and they're more than welcome to take a look at this. Um, but also the willingness to say, go do it. You may make a mistake. Yeah. We may get this wrong. Yeah. Challenge me as your leader if you think I'm on the wrong path. Yeah, I think that's so critical to invite people into this process, right? And, and not just like right, the leader sorts it out in the conference room and comes up with a better answer. I think in today's environment, right, the people who do the work, they know so much more about the work than, than any of their right, high-level supervisors will ever know. So I think it's critical to involve people there. Um, but I just want to also double-click on what you said earlier. We, we tried, I think, in, in writing the book, really also create like a, a realistic journey, depiction of the journey, right? Because it's not... Like in a traditional business book where people say, hey, you know, buy some robots and, you know, J&J did this and now they're printing money, right? Or, right, put an ERP, right? And that solves all the problems. But the reality is, and you know that, right, as, as much as we do, 
it's really hard to get anything done in an organization, right? And, and uh, even harder to change how the work gets done. There's a lot of forces that work against you. And so we want to create like a realistic picture of like what people will run into, the politics, right? The incentives that pull people into different ways. So I think it's important to be right, clear-eyed about those challenges. But at the same time, right, also step back and say, you know, there is an opportunity we just can't miss. How many things, as David said, have a triple win? Right? I mean, there are things that are good for the customer, but they're right, not good for the business. They're, they're, right? The things are good for productivity, but right, the employees hate them. This is really, I think, one of those opportunities where you can, where you can serve all of the masters here and, and deliver something that, that has an impact for everybody involved. And it really, it was a benefit to us of, of using the parable format because we get to really see how this team, if you will, just building on that co-creates the solution in a sense. You know, change is hard. I mean, even from worse to better, change is hard. And to your point, we see some of the resistance, the very, you know, realistic resistance that occurs in the organization. And to see the power of this sort of co-creation and the the the, the genesis of that and the, the and how it how how it sort of then takes forward from a change perspective, because now you've got you you've got you've got a, a nucleus that is advancing this in a very deliberate, specific way. Uh, it, 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 we hear that it's very inspiring for folks that look at this with characters that they care about and people that they relate to, which just makes it all the more emulatable for folks that work their way through it. I want to pick up again, David, on a couple of points there. Uh, years ago, I studied with Judith Glasser, who did a lot of work around the neuroscience of conversation. And one area that she focused her study on, her research on, was building of trust. Another was what she called levels of conversation. And they were transactional, just let's exchange names, phone numbers, information, whatever. Positional, which is so much of the conversation in the book. You know, we've got sales, who is very clear about their priorities, IT, who is very clear about their priorities, and we're in these dueling positions trying to make our cases. Um, and the third is transformational, which is co-creation. And co-creation is built on trust. And again, if I go back into the book, one of the things that I thought was so brilliant was when Jerry, the the manager or supervisor of, of this particular department starts this process, people aren't so sure, even on his team, that he's really serious and open and he really has to work to build the trust in order to what becomes a, a, a real game changer um, that then begins to roll out more broadly in the organization. It's a great point. And, you know, that, that trust building happens both from inclusion, his willingness to, 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 in a sense, challenge the status quo, but also by him expressing his own vulnerability and, and really genuinely incorporating uh, uh, feedback and willingness to change. Part of the, 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 ch the change resistance that is experienced, you know, nobody wants to lead with their chin. And if, if, if he had left someone exposed or, or you know, allowed this to happen, and I don't want to sort of, you know, give, give, give too much of the story away, of course, but, but it's, it's such an important element you mentioned because those things happen beyond the platitudes. 
you can't just stand in a conference room and say, gee, we're, we're now all going to trust one another. Or we're, you know, we're now, we're now, you know, it's going to be student, student by the left here that, you know, we, you know, it's, it's like, uh, help, help our manager read a book, right? Like, uh oh, um, it, it's, you know, no, it's actually including them and in getting down to a level of detail where they're directly involved. Yeah. The, the expression that I often use is, uh, nobody, nobody washes a rental car. Nobody in the history of rental cars has ever washed one and came back and said to her, it's right. I vacuumed the back seat and yeah. It's better than it was before, right? It never happened. Why? Because it's not your car. And, and so we treat people in jobs the same way, right? They're just renting the job for, right, a month, a year, right? But we don't let them, right, take ownership of this. And I think it's a huge missed opportunity. And and when people right, are part of the solution, are invested in it, then it also is staying power. It's sustainable, right? There's continuous improvement. They find ways to make it even better. Right? It's a little bit this atomic habits idea, right? Every day get 1% better. You get a whole lot better in the long run, right? But you got to gotta give people the space to own and be part of the solution, right? We all want to contribute to something that's bigger than ourselves, right? And not just be on the receiving end of somebody else's decisions. And yeah, and to, to build on the mechanistic, humanistic, in a way to, to, to quote Thomas a little bit, you know, we often, you know, we, we started with human resources, which are, you know, resources are things you use up, you know, and you know, some people refer to human capital. Capital are just things, just assets, things we own. What this approach encourages us to do, how about human development? How about engage individuals as human beings? And to your point about Tatum, what make, well, what are their interests? What makes them tick? How can we actually match things in a way where meaning, purpose, feedback, this, you know, the, the autonomy is meaningfully oriented into the design itself. So that the job looks attractive, people would say, gee, actually, yeah, I, you know, this, this feels like my car, if you will, right? I care about what this looks like. Just one more point I want to build on there, David. Um, early on in the book, there's an unexpected vacancy and it's tough to fill because the best people really aren't interested in becoming another cog in this you know, behind schedule, behind processing, backlogged team. And yet, as you move through the story and the work becomes meaningful and the, the processes change and, and so forth and so on, um, people are owning those changes. They're wanting to stay, not leave. And they're wanting continuing opportunities to grow. And all of that comes about by knowing the people, engaging the people, uh, listening, servant leadership, if you will, in many ways. Gentlemen, I think there's a lot more to unpack. And I really, as I told you before we started recording, I've been referencing this book in both group coaching and individual coaching sessions at many levels of the, the client organizations that I'm working with because, again, not just the problems, not just the theory, but the real practicality of fixing work is at the heart of your book. So we're going to have to end this conversation just um, in, in just a moment, but I'd ask if uh, each of you would have one last 
comment to share with our listeners? Yeah, I think one thing maybe to, to keep in mind, right, is that you can only do a good job if there's a good job to be done, right? And, and so how, whether that job is a good job or not, is really where managers, I think, can play an outsized role. And really, to David's point about like, the human development, and really create jobs that allow people to flourish. And right, yes, right, it's about dollars and cents, right? But I think we should also put on the scorecard, right, how people feel about the work, how engaged they are, and 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 take pride on that. In in that, if we create roles that allow people to become better versions of themselves, to bring something out in them that they may even not not have known about themselves. Right. So I think, again, we see that's like a little bit like a clarion call, the book is to say, right, take a look at what's around you and see if there are opportunities to make more more humanistic. And, and I would just add briefly, if it's all right, you know, I, I've worked in large global corporations, I've worked in startups. This is actually possible, right? This isn't a subject that you're going to look at and you're going to say, gee, this is, you know, uh, three steps away or this, you know, the, the, the idea was to put a blueprint together. This triple win is actually possible. Um, you know, the, the research is real. The results are real. I uh, appreciate the opportunity to come to, to come aboard and chat about it. David Henkin and Thomas Bertels, Fixing Work, coming to a bookstore, real or digital, near you soon. <laughs> Thank you, gentlemen, so much for this conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having us.